grateful for the new year and uh, just looking for our uh, looking forward to uh, what God has in store for us and for 121 and for his church as a whole and uh, so thank you for being with us uh, to worship today and uh, again we're gonna the next uh, three weeks we're gonna focus and think about uh, what worship is my prayer my hope is that uh, we'd be able to build on uh, things that God has already done and taught us and the ways we respond to him uh, that we might be stretched in ways that we haven't thought about before and that things that are to be a part uh, of worshiping God, that those things would be uh, removed uh, in our thinking and in the ways that we worship God. And I love that we can be part of a church to be challenged, uh, encouraged, uh, and stretched. So we look forward to the days ahead. Uh, in 1997, uh, I attended a worship uh, gathering that, that really changed the trajectory uh, of the way I understood worship. Uh, and maybe you've had those moments, I suspect that you have, that uh, in different times in your walk with Christ, if you're a, if you're a believer uh, in Christ, there are those moments that things just accelerate in your thinking and the changing the way that you understand something about a God, about his word, uh, and it just continues to build on things that had already been uh, placed within each of us. But in the mid-90s, I was the student pastor in, in Pensacola, Florida at First Baptist Church, and uh, I absolutely loved those days, and I loved working with students. Uh, in 1996, I was given the opportunity to add uh, to the student role, not just middle and high school, but the college students, uh, and I was uh, is asking God, how do we galvanize our students, our college students? How do we start to build something here that's centered uh, on Christ? Well, that fall of 1996, a mentor of mine, Jerome Smith, uh, he had mentored me all in my years, the first few years I did youth ministry, and most of what I learned in the way I did youth ministry, I learned from him, uh, and I'd invited him out to lead a training uh, for our youth workers, and when he came, I said, hey, Jerome, I said, I'm praying and trying to figure out a way to galvanize our college students. Do you have any thoughts for me? And I was familiar with Louis Giglio from being at a ministry called Choice at Baylor University at the time. And, uh, and Jerome was on uh, Louis Giglio's board. Uh, and he said, hey, uh, Louis is starting this thing called Passion uh, it'll be in Austin in 19, at the beginning of the year, 1997, and you ought to take some students to it. I said, that's a great idea. I trust Jerome. Uh, I love Louis teaching. Uh, and 18 of us uh, drove from Pensacola, Florida to Austin, Texas uh, in the early part of 1997 for a three-day gathering uh, that was a worship gathering. And that is what changed trajectories for me of my understanding of worshiping God. There, there were a number of things that happened, but there were 2,000 of us uh, that gathered, uh, and we were 18 of those 2,000. And Louis cast a vision for 18 to 25-year-olds to be the 268 generation. And he anchored that 268 generation, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 8. And what God says in his word in Isaiah is that it's your name and your renown that's the desire of my soul. And Louis's challenge, and it has gone on for years now uh, for this generation, for every generation and subsequent 18 to 25-year-olds, that the generational challenge is 
Will God's name and God's renown, God's fame, be the desire of your soul? And it's a question that's not just for a generation of 18 to 25-year-olds. From God's word, the question is today, would you and I say that the desire of our souls is for God's name and God's renown, for his fame to be known? Is that the desire of our soul? Because that's where our worship, everything begins with where our desires are. If that's not our desire, we won't be very exuberant in worship. But if his name and his renown, if that's our desire, then the worship is going to happen. Well, fast forward 27 years. We took 22 students from here to Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, Georgia, and we gathered with representatives of students from 1,600 colleges, over 50,000 18 to 25-year-olds, and leaders of those 18 to 25-year-olds uh, for a Wednesday night, an all-day Thursday, Thursday night, a Friday morning of focusing and centering on one name, on the name Jesus. Now, we don't have to travel to Atlanta to do that. We're gonna do that today. Uh, but I just want you to know that there were some moments uh, in this uh, space the other day that were really holy moments. The word holy means to set apart. And, and there were just some moments that were weighty moments of God's presence. And, and I hope that it's a long time before I leave being in those moments. There have been times in my life where there have been moments like that. It comes in a variety of ways. I never know how God will move, but these were some weighty moments. One of those came on Thursday afternoon. There were multiple bands that led through the three days. I can't recall who was leading that afternoon. I'm glad I can't recall it because the point is not how great a band is or how great a worship leader. The point is how great and how awesome God is. And we were led in the song that Cody Carnes wrote called Nothing Else, Nothing Else Will Do uh, But You. And, and we just, we were led in that song. Uh, it's him, I just want you. Uh, and I'm a terrible singer, so I'm not gonna do that for you. I wish I could. But he led us, and then we lingered in it. Just like Jack let us just sit in the end of that song a minute ago. We just didn't rush out of the song. And you never know what God will do when we just linger in a moment. And we just sat in that, and they played a little bit, the instruments, but the band just kind of backed off. And in the back of Mercedes-Benz Stadium, you start to hear the 18 to 25-year-olds singing, nothing else, I just want you. Nothing else, I just want you. And you know those moments in time where somebody tries to yell out something or start something and you realize they really missed the moment. Nobody picks up on it. Nobody else rolls with them. But they thought this was their time to jump in and lead. This was not one of those moments. And the song just started to pick up. And it wasn't anybody from a stage leading. It was out there. And it was coming forward. And just kept rolling over. Nothing else. I just want you. Nothing else. I just want you. Nothing else. I just want you. 
When we have worship in its right spot, that's all we want. We just want him. We just want God. Is that the desire of your soul? You turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. We'll be in verses one through nine. If I can encourage you to hang out in this passage this week and uh, stay there a little bit longer beyond verse nine and read through at least verse 20 and get a broader context. As you're settling in and in your scriptures and turning to the word, there's a couple of things that I'd like to say. Uh, and that is, I wanna say welcome to those uh, who are in prison uh, that are worshiping with us today. We, we love that uh, we have the means and the technology to be able to, to worship together. Uh, so thank you for joining us and we welcome you. Uh, and then anybody that's new that you have any interest in knowing what's going on at 121, our desire is God himself. We can give you specifics of that today at a lunch that would be catered for you. So if you'd like to stay, we'd love to have you uh, be a part of it. Uh, and then two weeks from now, we're having a lunch called Go Now Mission that will focus on our global efforts for this year and the things God is inviting us into, ways you can be a part of it. Uh, there's multiple ways to be a part of it. And the reality is when we understand God and we worship God, this was one of those light bulb moments for me in 1997. The, the mission that we're about of leading people to live for Jesus Christ, not just in our local realm, but all over the world, that that flows from our worship. That if we don't have a, a heart for the nations and a heart for what God has, it's a worship problem. It's not a mission problem, it's a worship problem. And when I realized that, I was, oh, wow, as if we really are in tune and worshiping who God is, then our heart will start to align with his heart, and we'll be about what he's about. And he's about the nations coming to know him. And Louie reminded us the other day, I was at that first passion with those 2,000 students, and I'd forgotten this moment till he reminded the other night at Passion 2024. And what he said is that at that first passion, when they got to the end of it, and there was a, there was a call that they made to the 18 to 25-year-olds to say, hey, who out here is God working in their hearts to be a part of going across the globe and taking the name of Jesus to the nations? 2,000 people there, 300 stood up. And he said, you know what? I stepped back and thought, I don't think they understood the question. And so he asked everybody to sit back down. And he said, let me make sure I'm clear in what I'm saying. And he reframed it. And 300 stood up. And the other day we met a young lady that was there in 1997 that's been serving, taking the name of Jesus to Japan in all these years. You don't have to go to Atlanta, Georgia with a bunch of 18 to 25-year-olds to figure out what God might have for you for the nations. Just show up two weeks from now at a lunch and hear what God's doing and ask them, how do you want me to be a part of what your heart is for the nations? Well, I want to look at Matthew 15, and uh, it's, a, it's a challenging uh, part of the scriptures uh, in thinking about worship. And, and I want to 
just go around one idea today. In the next couple of weeks, we'll spend some more time. And what I'd like you to do is send me questions this week. You can shoot me an email on the website. Just go to the website. You can get my email address. Uh, but thoughts you have, insight, questions you'd like us to answer. But today, what I want to focus on is really just the desires of our heart and that, that we would be able to answer the question, what is the desire of our heart, and that we might have undivided hearts for God himself, that, that we would be able to sing. We don't have to manufacture. We're not trying to duplicate anything from passion. I'm just going to pass on to you some things that God did uh, in, in the hopes that God will do things in totally different ways with us, but that he'll grab our hearts for himself. They'll be undivided and fixed on him. And the first thing we need to consider about an undivided heart is tradition or truth, tradition or truth. Sometimes what can happen is tradition can end up being more important to us than truth. Jesus has that kind of encounter. I want us to think about how he did it here and then uh, how God might have something to say to us. Verse chapter 15, Matthew verse one. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and they said, Now, context here, they're in Galilee. Jesus is uh, at one of the towns around the Sea of Galilee. It's a small little area. The Pharisees and scribes, they're the religious system. Uh, They're the song, I'll make room for you. We shatter the walls of religion and tradition. Uh, These guys were all about tradition, all about religion. They're the system of the day. And the heavy hitters are in Jerusalem, They don't usually come to Galilee, but Jesus was a threat to them. Jesus was challenging the things that they were saying, and finally they had enough. We've got to go down from Jerusalem, send our top guys, and we got to squelch this. That's what's happening. In verse 2, they come to him with a question. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. So these heavyweight religionist guys, they come, question and example. Why are your disciples breaking the tradition of the elders? This is a problem. And then here's the example. They're not washing their hands when they eat bread. All right, the last few years, we've learned how to wash our hands. You can't go very many places without a sign that tells you in the bathroom uh, for 20 seconds, Warm water, soap, keep rubbing them, get both sides, dry them off, grab a paper towel, grab the door, go out, make sure you don't get them dirty again. That's not what this is. When you read this, that's not what this is. This is about a ceremonial purity, a ritual kind of purity, and What had happened over time is the religious leaders had started writing things and adding things in addition to God's word. And one of the things they wrote is that to be pure before you do your rituals, there has to be this washing of the hands, this cleansing of the hands. Now, an example would be in their day, if they touched a Gentile, a Gentile person is a non-Jew then they would be unclean. And they couldn't carry out their duties in their religious system. So they needed to do the washing of the hands to be able to do that. And they're saying, hey, your disciples aren't doing this. Why is that? Now, in verse three, 
uh, Jesus answered and he said to them, Jesus doesn't answer their question directly. He answers with another question and an example. Religious leaders, a question, example. Jesus, fine. I'm going to ask you a question and I'm going to give you an example. Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Why, why is it that you've made your tradition more important than the commandment of God? What is it about that, that you would do that? It's really a question Jesus is asking, is asking about authority. Where's the authority? Is the authority in the tradition of your religion or is the authority in the word of God? And there, he's saying to them, you've transgressed the commandment of God. So he's letting them know they've crossed a boundary, they've elevated tradition above the word of God. Now we're asking the question here, with Jesus, are we doing any of that where we're elevating tradition over truth? I was reading the Psalms a few months ago and I read most of the fall, I was hanging out in the Psalms and I came across Psalm 119, I forget the reference, uh, but it says, your word is very pure, therefore I'll love it. I love the simplicity of that. Your word, God, is truth. It's very pure, and I love it. The religious people didn't love it. They needed to try to fix some things and add some things to it. And Jesus is challenging what they've done. Then he gives them an example, for God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. So he gives them the fifth commandment. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He's not to honor his father or his mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. I want to talk about that example Jesus gives. He's countering them. And religious people, by the way, like to control and it's really about themselves. Sometimes people who are controlling will come to faith in Christ, but all it is is another way to control through their faith. The religious people were controlling, they were self interested, and they actually loved themselves. That's the essence of what's happening here. What's the example Jesus gives? There's a word, Corban. It's, it's what the scripture is here. It's a formal vow that someone would make that they are committing their finances and their property to the temple. Once they've made that commitment, that vow, they can't break the vow and they can't use that money or that property for example, to help aging parents and to care for parents. Interestingly, though, they could use the money for themselves until they died, then it would go to the temple. All it was was a way to keep it for themselves. And Jesus is saying, gosh, this commandment says honor your father and your mother. You're violating that command for your own human law that you made. 
You elevated it. You invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Can I encourage you this week to think through, are there any traditions that I have that don't align with the truth of God, his word, and Jesus? Something that might have been built in when you were a child growing up, built in when you were part of a particular denomination, built in when you were part of a particular branch of a church. Are there traditions? Are there, for example, is it built into us that here's the way to worship? This is the way it should flow. This is the way it goes. Do we have in our, in, built into us that here's a way this is to happen? Does that actually line up with what God says about truth? Or one that we face often is someone might have an experience with God. Like, I'm describing to you what happened at Passion the last few days. What I'm not trying to do is impose that on you or on us. But what I could say is that's the only way to gather up and worship. And that would be elevating an experience above the word of God. God works in a number of ways. I was at a church this summer that was very liturgical, very formal in its worship, and it was powerful. Probably not the way I'd like to do it every week, but I tell you what, there was a joy and a life with people worshiping God. So it's, can, can we be willing to search our hearts? Because we don't want tradition to rent. We want truth to rule our hearts when we think about uh, worship. And when we know the truth, the truth sets us free. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. We want to make sure that our desires, by the way, so, so oftentimes we talk about feelings and desires and emotions and so forth. They're not bad. They're just tainted by sin like the rest of us, and it's not a good leader. We lead with truth, and that stirs the affections and the emotions and the desires of our heart. And Colossians 2.8, I think, is a good word for us to think about. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive through the philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So it's not tradition, it's not elementary principles of the world, it's Christ. The word captive means to take captive and kidnap truth from someone. We don't want truth kidnapped from our heart. Lean into the truth, our hearts be undivided on Christ. John Piper, in his book, Desiring God, in his chapter on worship, talks about when we gather for worship, there ought to be two channels for us to operate in true worship. One, we need to be doing things that allows our minds to apprehend truth. That's what we're doing when we're in God's word. That's what we're doing in the content of our songs. We're apprehending truth. And then we need to provide ways for people to respond to that truth. Because when our heart's ignited by the beauty of Christ, the beauty of the truth, how do we respond to that? You've already been given opportunities today to sing back to God, the beauty of who he is. To in silence ask him to make room in your heart today. Those are ways to respond to the truth of God. Tradition, truth. There's a second thing here that we'll consider. Is our worship 
Vain or sincere? Is it vain or sincere? Verse seven through nine. Jesus says, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. Now, I think it's a good pattern to look at Jesus' life and say, when he encountered really broken people, he was more gentle and gracious with them. But when he encountered people in the religious system that came at him like these guys were, he came right back at them. You hypocrites. You, you're fake. You're focused on the externals. You're not about the heart. You've got a mask on. You want everybody to think one thing about you when something else is actually what's true. There have been few moments in life where I've responded to somebody like this. But I did respond on Thursday to someone this way. There were people outside the stadium that were against what was going on inside the stadium, and it was incredibly judgmental and condemning, and I ended up in a dialogue with, with a group of them. He told me I was a heretic, a false prophet, that I left my wife unprotected, this was all in the first five minutes. I said, how did you just make that assessment of me in five minutes? It's because I tied myself up with passion. So this, I said, are you assuming that everybody in there is not a Christian? There might be a remnant, they said. I said, well, what would the remnant be doing in there? I said, well, they don't know better. They'll learn. Okay. So I told him he was self-righteous judgmental, condemning. I was just studying this. I thought, this looks like the moment you're supposed to do this. <laughs> this is what he said. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the precepts of men. So you hypocrites, you're honoring me with your lips. It, it looks like it's all good out here. You're, this is what you're doing, but your hearts are far away from me. This is the core issue for him, that the heart is far away. God is after our heart. He's after the core uh, of who we are. In, uh, in Amos, a uh, prophet in the Old Testament, God has something to say about the way they were worshiping. Amos and Isaiah are similar, similar time frame, verse 21 through 24, God says, this is what he thinks about their external worship. I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I won't accept them. And I'll not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. They were doing everything externally they were supposed to do as the people of God. They were doing the festivals that they were to do, they were bringing the sacrifices they were to bring. And then he says in verse 23, take away from me the noise of your songs. Quit singing to me. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps, but instead let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. See, God's not grateful that we just show up and externally worship him. Like that, 
that doesn't cause his heart to well up with gratitude towards us. Thank you for showing up. God is after hearts that are for him. We can worship God, it can be insincere. Verse nine, it says, but in vain do they worship me. In the 10 commandments, the third command is to not take the Lord your God in vain. I suspect most of us, when we think about not taking God's name in vain, the way we think about that is attaching a cuss word to God's name. That's taking God's name in vain. But I want us to expand what that is. The word vain means empty and thoughtless. So whenever I worship God, thoughtlessly, mechanically, or in an empty way, I am taking his name in vain. In Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, quit coming to God with your meaningless repetition in prayer. Say, well, that's kind of odd because later on Jesus says, tells a story, and he says, be persistent in your prayer. Keep coming back and ask the same thing. It's because it's a matter of the heart. Keep asking the same thing with a heart that's directed to him. If you're reading a storybook Bible to your kids at night and you're praying the same prayer every time and you've checked out in your mind when you're praying the prayer, that's meaningless. Pray the same prayer. Nothing wrong with praying the same thing. But is your heart and mind engaged in what you're praying? See, sincere and true worship it's with our mind engaged. So what would be some ways that we worship in vain? And this is a challenge, right? And we're not gonna, we don't know the heart of every person. We'll talk about these things more in the coming weeks as well. But for example, we could gather in worship and some of us will raise our hands to God. There'll be a song that's about surrender or there'll be something and they just say, you just, you just, just, it's a natural way to respond to God. Somebody else can be raising their hands and it's meaningless and nothing. It was just mindlessly done. So I don't know if you lift your hands. Does that mean we had great worship today? I don't know. Because I don't know your heart at the end of the day. So it's a heart question. Again, we'll speak more of this as we... Live through the next couple of weeks. Do we check out depending on who the worship leader is and the way they lead? Is it about the content of the song, the praise and worship of God, or is it about the person on stage that's doing it? We can become thoughtless and unengaged, or we can be engaged in its meaning. Do we come in as a consumer? Just what do I get, and then I move on, or do we come in for God? 
I think we might all know what this is like to have somebody in our lives, either family or friend, that we realize it's not really us they enjoy, but we have something to offer them they can get from us. And after a while, we don't really love that. Are we just going to God, not because we really enjoy him, but this is what he can get me. Are our cell phones a means to use the scripture when we're in worship? Or is it a means for me to thoughtlessly check out and see who just texted me? or to check my emails? Am I worshiping online because you can't see me checking my emails or my texts? And I can be in the other room doing something while I have the big screen over my fireplace and I say I worship that morning. Or I can be fully engaged for whatever reason that I'm online and I'm right there and I'm engaged in the word and I'm singing the songs and my mind's in the prayers and I'm in there. Heart, an undivided heart. God gets our heart, our our mind undivided, our heart undivided that he gets uh, us as we are after him. And the more we're in God's word and the truth is ignited, then it ignites the affections in our heart for him. It stirs us uh, to worship him and to enjoy him. And the reality is here when we see in verse 9, but in vain do they worship me, we all are worshipers today. Every person is a worshiper. God made us to be worshipers. The word worship comes from a Latin word that means worship, and it's to ascribe worth to. And all of us ascribe worth to something. We make it a center for us. We value it, and we center our lives around it. Everybody does that. And we may have different things. In our hearts, in Jeremiah 17, 9, we're told, are desperately sick uh, more than all else. And because our hearts are desperately sick, we get distorted in our object of worship. And so we start chasing after other things that we believe are more worthy than God is. So we're asking, is our worship vain or is it sincere? John Piper in Desiring God defines worship as gladly reflecting back to God the radiance of his worth. I shrunk it down just a little bit for us. What is worship if we're in truth and sincerity, we are gladly responding to the worth of God? We're looking at the character of God, we're looking at who God is, we're looking at the word of God and say, this is who you are, God, you're worth it, and I'm gonna gladly respond to that. I can gladly respond with brokenness because he's worth it to be broken in sin before and knowing there's hope in that. I can gladly respond to goodness, awesomeness of God. Why would we worship God? Some people say he's an arrogant God that would ask for our worship. Anybody else could ask for our worship and it would be arrogant. Only God can ask for our worship and it's not arrogant. 
See, in John 4, 23, it says, God is seeking worshipers. That's what he's seeking. And God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. But God is seeking worshipers. In Luke 19, it says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. So when we talk about sharing our faith with people, what we're doing is inviting people to know Jesus, and then when they know Jesus, that they become a worshiper of God. That, that's the end. God, God is the end. Things about him. It says Psalm 16, 11, it says, you make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy, and your right hand there are pleasures forever. The only place to find the fullness of pleasure and joy we really are seeking is in God himself. So he's actually, by seeking us as worshipers, he's given us the very thing we want. And we're all pleasure seekers. That pleasure is found in God himself. It's why the command in Psalm 37, 4, to delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Find delight in him, pleasure in him. It's not just, I believe in God. It's, do you find pleasure in him? Do you find delight in him? Do you find enjoyment in him? And as you do, then your desires, the desire of your soul start to line up with him and he'll give you that desire. One of the really holy moments at Passion was actually on the very first night. And they brought out on stage a man named Leo from Peru. And Leo had gone to Passion years before on a scholarship. And at that particular Passion, Leo became a follower of Jesus. And now he's a Bible translator, helping those billions of people across the world that have no translation of the scriptures in their heart language. And so the challenge for the students, there's always something for us to actively do to engage the globe. And this time it was, can we raise a million dollars in those three days for a full translation of the Bible for the Amara people group in Peru? 250,000 people, they have no access to the scriptures in their language. A million dollars, these are college students, 18 to 25. So we talked about that. Well, then Leo had his translating equipment. I don't know how else to talk about it. I couldn't figure out. It, it was quite the conglomeration of stuff. And we, we were challenged to do a 12-verse challenge. Paid $35 a month for one verse for a year. That would get us to the million to be able to do a full translation for the Amara people. Well, what Leo did right in front of us, and it's probably about... It took about 10 minutes, easy. And think about that in front of 50 or 60,000 people, just a guy typing. It's just click, click, click. I was just so overwhelmed listening to every click of God's word, starting in John 3, 16, the first 12 verses that the Amara people would ever have being translated right in front of us. And then he finished. And then Louie came out and he said, what if we sent Leo tonight down to the Amara people 
And in 14 hours, he can deliver the first 12 verses in their heart language of scripture to the pastor in the church that only function orally because they don't have the written word of God. Leo walks out of the room. We're praying over him as he goes out. And as you could guess, that was Wednesday night on Friday morning. We watched on video. As the pastor, person after person in the church, had 12 verses of the Bible for the first time ever in their language. And to see the joy on their faces and the Amara language to read, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him does not perish, but everlasting life. True worship comes from being lined up with the truth of God's word and Jesus Christ himself. And then during a break on Thursday, we had about two hour, two or three hour break for dinner. We come back and there was this 80 foot cross that was in the front part of Mercedes Benz Stadium. I love the cross we have here. It's just the magnitude uh, and the bigness of the cross. But 80 foot, here, here it is. Here's, here's what it looked like. talked about the gospel standing right here at the foot of the cross. And he said, I just want you to see from the shadow of the cross and the bigness of the cross that it dwarfs everything. It dwarfs every religious system. It dwarfs your guilt and condemnation. It dwarfs me and mine. The cross is big. And on the cross, Jesus died for you. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul says. I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me by faith through his son that delivered him. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. This is the center of it all. What, what Jesus did for us, the way, the truth, and the life. So we want to allow truth to sink down into our hearts, not tradition, not emptiness and meaninglessness, sincerity, truth. But what makes moments like those gatherings or moments like camps or moments like men's retreats or women's retreats but there's just moments with God like that. It's, it's from a flow of what's going on in a life. Worship is a way of life. We're always acknowledging the worth of God. And there's pauses. Time alone with God. Small group community. And then we gather. Let me give a football example. 
tomorrow night. University of Washington playing the University of Michigan for the national championship. Most everybody doesn't care in here. But there are people here from Washington and the Northwest, and they're fired up about it. We have people from Michigan that are here, and they're fired up about it. And you know what the diehards have been doing? Every day, they're reading things about their team. They're reading about the players. They're reading about why they have a chance to win. And when they can get with people who are willing to talk about it, they're talking about it. And there are some people that shelled the money out a fortune, and they'll be in Houston tomorrow to be a part of it. And there are others that'll be on TV that'll watch it. And we'll see every emotion extreme on both sides. People will live and die on every play. I, I think that's fun, actually. But where it's meaningful is when we understand God that way. That every day, like Jesus, who in the early morning got up, left his house, went to a solitary place, and was praying there. Every morning with his father. And then we gather up in our life groups, our small groups, and we talk about God. And we enjoy him and delight in him and who he is, what he's doing. And then we come eagerly anticipating God when we gather in worship. We come looking for God when we come here. And when we spent time with them, been in small groups with them, it magnifies moments like this. And then sometimes God will surprise us with really holy moments. And the moment I hope that God does not let me forget for a long time was Friday morning. On Friday morning, we sang a song about holiness of God, the worthiness of God. As you are holy, holy Lord God Almighty, worthy is the Lamb. And they were leading us from the stage, and then again, they gave us a chance to linger in it. And it got quiet. And then again, in the back of the room, they started singing. You are holy, holy, Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb. And then it would start to move around the stadium and get louder. The same as the Nothing Else song. And they just kept saying it over and over. You're holy, holy, worthy is the Lamb. You're holy, holy, worthy is the Lamb. You're holy, holy. Worthy is the lamb. You're holy, holy, worthy is the lamb. And it just kept seeing it and kept seeing it and kept seeing it. And I know for so many people you think if heaven is just about repeating the same phrase over and over again, there's nothing appealing about that. But I want you to know in the purity of that moment, it went on for a long time and it was just the same thing. And when we're in the new heavens and the new earth and we have no more flesh to battle, no more Satan schemes to battle, no more shaping of the world to battle, when all of that has 
been removed, and it is just in the purity and the presence of God, we will not tire of saying, worthy, worthy is the lamb. You are holy, holy. We'll join the angels. We'll love being around the throne. We won't wanna leave that moment. We didn't wanna leave that moment. That was student after student that said that. You didn't wanna leave it. If you ever had moments, you didn't wanna leave it. That's what a glimpse of eternity is. It'll be an eternal moment that we never want to leave. Nothing else, God. I just want you. And we can have that now. Father, I pray that we would be a people that long for you, that yearn for you, that desire you, God. Help us to lay aside distractions, emptiness, meaninglessness. God, with our minds that we would apprehend truth and that that would fuel and ignite our hearts, God, our affections, our emotions, our desires. And God, that we would know the weight of your glory like we felt the other day. God, I'm so grateful that those moments, I I thought about even when we sing holy, 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 and it's just always so powerful. It's because we're sitting under the praise and weight of who you are. And I love, God, that in those moments, you just cause our sin to fall away. Thank you for covering us at the cross, and I pray, God, that all of us would know what it is to rest at the foot of the cross, to walk in the power of the resurrection and in your spirit, God. Search our hearts that there'll be no vanity there, that no tradition there that is above your word. Let us be lovers of truth, worshipers of you, God.